Thank you all for coming to listen to us tonight. Um, it's really nice to see a lot of people that we do know so well um, who've came. But if you don't know me, I am Lila, and this is Andrew, and we've been married for almost ten years. Um, yeah, <laughs> we work from Neil. Thank you. Um, so in that ten years, then we've been blessed with three children. We have two girls and a boy. Um, our girls, Tamar and Carmel, they're eight and five, and they're very happy, healthy little girls. And Petey is four, he's our youngest, he's our only boy, and he's a very happy child, but he is the reason that we are speaking tonight. As a newborn baby, Petey, or Peter, we refer to him as Petey, so it'll probably, Peter or Peter will alternate tonight. But, Peter if he's being badly behaved. Yes. <laughs> but like Andrew. Um, <laughs> so sorry, I'm going to mean that. Um, anyway, as a newborn baby, then Petey, um, he was a very healthy baby and really he showed no signs of concern. When he was born we really didn't see anything different um, and he was a happy, healthy little newborn baby. And it was only as he approached his first birthday that there were subtle things that we noticed that just were a bit different to the way the girls were. And when you have older children in the family, you do compare and you do know what you should be expecting, what a baby should be doing. And there were little things that we just couldn't explain. And he generally showed a lot of frustration with things. And we attributed that a long time to his skin problems. He had other little medical problems and he was always itchy and he was on a lot of medication. And for a long time we just thought he's just a bit irritable, he's just struggling and this is what it is. But over time there were things that just were just more than frustration. Um, He was distressed a lot of the time, he cried a lot of the time. He would flap his hands in frustration instead of saying or showing you something, he would be stationary and flap his hands. He didn't respond to social situations the way we would expect a toddler to. And he had peculiar wee habits, like he would press his bare skin against really cold objects. So like um, the floor or a book, and he really seemed to get a lot of satisfaction out of that. And he'd done it quite often that we thought that is just a wee bit strange. It's more than a toddler just feeling warm. And then the biggest sort of sign to us that something might be wrong is that just after his first birthday, he lost some of the words he had learned. So if you have a baby who's over one, they are saying mama and dada and they're they're clapping their hands and they're trying to sing. Um, He could do that before he was one, but he just seemed to lose it. Um, All of a sudden he lost these words and became really silent other than his crying and being distressed. And that really did make us sort of sit up and pay attention. At a time really when we should have been seeing a big jump forward with him becoming more independent, he seemed to be going backwards and the medical term for that is regression. And although now we know why that is, because we have the autism diagnosis back then, that was a really confusing time. To us as parents, we aren't from a medical background, we have two other healthy children, we had no reason to, to explain what was going on. And Back then, I don't, we can't remember the date, but there was a time when Andrew suggested to me, what if it's autism? And being really, I have to be really honest tonight, I didn't take that very well. And I cried, and Andrew felt really guilty for upsetting me, and you know, I said, how could you say that about our child? And that was really the end of the conversation for quite a while. And it took me a lot longer to really admit, okay, well, there might be something. Um, I don't even think I I acknowledged myself autism, but I recognised we needed to ask for help. So that marked a year of referrals to various people. So we went to a health visitor, to the doctor, paediatrician, speech therapist, autism therapist. um, And then eventually in November 2016, he got his positive diagnosis for ASD. And I really wish I had something very profound to say about that day when we got the diagnosis but the biggest thing we felt was relief because we had been working up to that point and you might think oh it must have been awful sad or it must have been really shocked we weren't we were relieved because we finally had a a reason we had a medical name to say this explains this behavior we understand this is the difficulty and where it's coming from so the relief we felt really was tremendous getting that diagnosis and as we drove away from the clinic that day um, it was just Andrea and I in the car. Petey wasn't with us on that day. 
And Andrew and I process things in very different ways. And Andrew processes it silently by thinking and pondering. He's probably a bit more spiritual. <laughs> in my head, I was just thinking really practically. And question after question kept coming around in my head. And the first thing I thought of was, who will look after him when we die? That is where my head jumped. I had this two-year-old with this diagnosis. But that was where my mind went. And then quickly I said, well, like, is he actually ever going to leave us? Is he going to be at home with us forever? Will he be able to get married? Um, will he ever be able to talk? Now, at this point, he had no words. You all know him to be a chatterbox now. And you ha- he's always been like that from we came here. But if back then, it's hard to describe what it's like when your child can't or doesn't say could, but he wouldn't say mama or dada. Or he couldn't say if he was sore or if he was sick or if he was scared. And those things as a parent, it's, it's an awful thing that your child can't communicate that to you. And that was one of my biggest fears at that time. But as you know, you know one of those answers anyway. He can talk, he can talk very well and he has made really great progress in the past year and a half. And from that point on, Andrew and I did do as much as we could to help him help ourselves. And that included things like going to parent training workshops. We read a lot of books, a lot of websites. We got advice from people. Um, Our care from the health service has been really varied, from really tremendous and with lots of good professionals, sometimes Christian people, to really horrendous, horrific horror stories that I wouldn't want to share with you for fear of upsetting you. And that is the range of care that that families with autism receive. Um, But we are really grateful for the help we have gotten and we want to see the positive in it. We have a very good support network. And in this sense, we are quite unusual for many special needs families that you may come in contact with. We have a really good family network. and um, Both my family, Andrew's family, are fantastic. Um, they love PD, same way they love all the other children. They help us practically. They, um, they provide a lot for PD. He wants for nothing from our family. And we have friends who are also very supportive, even if they, they don't know what they're doing sometimes and they don't know what to say, that support is there. We have all of you, um, and we have had for the past um, 10 or 11 months now. You know, we have Kelly, who is tremendous, and she is more specialised in her knowledge. We have all that. We are unusual, and we are so thankful for it all. Um, and really, that has been a great um, support network to rely on during the hard times. Um, but one thing that really hasn't changed in the past four years is our faith in God and his provision. Even when our faith has wavered, we have questioned, we've been angry, um, we have wondered We have wondered what it would have been like if it wasn't like this. And being really honest, that, that's just, I think we're human and that's what we do even as Christians. But God hasn't changed and we can see in hindsight now his hand over the path. It has been so windy, you can't see it at the time. But he has been there, he has given us support, um, and he has been that rock. As much as we have a great support network, people will eventually let you down, but he has he's not, and he's not grown weary of us in our weariness. That's a very brief story um, of how we got here, and there's so much more detail, and if you'd like to know more, you can chat to us after. But what we really wanted to do tonight was to help you maybe understand a little bit more about autism, Um, and hopefully you'll learn something new tonight but we also want to talk through what we can learn from about disability in the bible um, and what the practical application is for the church today and as christians today because we want you to have something that feels useful as well when you leave here tonight to give you a bit more confidence Um, because at the end of the day the whole point of the church we are to we are to go out we're to preach the gospel we have a commission we have a great commission to fulfill And that will involve special needs families, it will involve people with autism, it will involve ministering to the parents, which is really where our heart is. Um, And to do that, we do need a wee bit more knowledge. So hopefully tonight you'll feel that you you learned something that is useful for you um, in that. 1 Peter 2.9 calls the church, Big C Church, a peculiar people. And and when you think about it, we, we really are a bit odd. To the outside world, our customs, our order of service... Everything we do can seem completely alien. Over the last few days, I've heard, I don't know how many people refer to the society we live in as being post-Christian. Even here in Northern Ireland, there's many people who have never stepped foot in the church, even for, for baptisms or funerals or weddings. Churches now have to react to, to this, this 
total change in our culture and have to change their tactics to reach a people that never had faithful parents or grandparents who sent them out to Sunday school, drilled them on Bible verses, sent them to the Good News Club. They've no idea what we do, who we are, or what we believe in. If the church becomes too comfortable with that culture that we have and, and, and we don't change, one of the side effects is that we can easily, we can easily lose the empathy that we have for, for those people that we want to reach. Sometimes the idea of changing church culture or changing our, our behaviour or, or our methods of outreach can be seen as, as somehow throwing out the gospel, somehow watering down. But we need to recognise that we can't reach everyone with the same tactics. And we never have, never through church history has that been the case. Everybody is unique. That's how God made us. Everyone has their own needs. Every one of us in this room that knows Christ the Saviour has a totally different story We've been saved equally, but in totally different ways. We've been transformed miraculously, but none of us have the same story. The church is very keen. Again, when I say church, I'm talking big C church. It actually, in my notes, I have it with a big C. That doesn't help any of you. Um, <laughs> but the big C church is very readily sending people out onto the mission field. Um, they're running programs where hundreds of people are coming in, but it's very easy, or it's, it's actually, that's not easy, obviously, Ronnie will tell us that's not easy. Um, you know, Kelly's just back from, from a mission trip, it's not, it's not an easy thing. But sometimes those big acts of service can actually be easier to do because they're more, they're more common, they're more familiar to us. And it's, it's the small gestures of love that become harder because sometimes it's very difficult to show empathy for people who maybe don't look like or sound like or act like us. Um, as a parent of a child with special needs, um, I know that appropriate church behaviour um, went out the window a long time ago. Uh, Peter... Peter came in here uh, in the early days, especially like like a tornado, uh, and <laughs> we'd be we'd doing laps of the church and and stage diving and <sighs> and I'm really thankful for the leadership team and the congregation here for for just going with it. I, I think you know it was maybe the third time we were here, and Peter ran up on up here when when Neil was praying and. Neil didn't even miss a beat, and he, he just welcomed them there. And, and to us, and to families like us, that, that is such a big deal. That's such a weight off your mind. It might seem like warmly welcoming people to church isn't a revolutionary idea. You'd, you'd think that that would be commonplace, but it's not always something we can take for granted. Um, as Lila said, we have, we have friends and family who support us. They do, they do a great job. But it doesn't mean that they too don't struggle to understand what our actual needs are. Sometimes a big gesture from a well-meaning relative could have disastrous effects. You know, it, it could be uh, a new toy or uh, you know, an outdoor playset or something that they have given in love. But not being with us day in and day out and understanding Peter's you know, completely unique needs in our situation means that it might not just work for him. And you know, even, even something like going, going to stay with relatives or going to visit relatives, going to visit friends, can be a stressful and confusing experience for, for all of us, for us, for our friends, for our children. Uh, you know, I have friends who still don't completely understand when we have to cancel at a moment's notice or you know don't, can't quite relate to us not being able to get you know a solid night's sleep you know, for maybe three weeks straight family members perhaps haven't got their house totally childproofed because you know grandparents haven't had a lot of babies around and you know maybe have a nice kitchen and don't want to put locks on the doors but then they're not completely ready for a curious and energetic four-year-old who takes apart everything and, and likes to escape. 
<laughs> so when struggles or difficulties are hidden, even, even the actions offered in love may not be appropriate. And, and so we'll, we'll share with our family and friends and we try to explain as best we can what we mean, what we need. We don't criticise because we want to offend anyone, but we want them to better understand. And, and I'm kind of hoping we can do a little bit of that tonight here as well. In terms of the church fulfilling the Great Commission, we know we're going to all the world and preach the gospel. But we have to do that in light of the Great Commandments. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You should love your neighbour as yourself. For the church really to reach everyone, for the church to reach families of children with special needs, for the church to reach people with special needs, for people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnicity, level of ability, we have to adapt our ministry. I think we all know that. But we must never forget about love when we do that. So as a church, how can we be inclusive? How can we make the gospel accessible to everyone? How can we share our lives with others without it being an afterthought? <coughs> you know, even as a father, I ask myself these questions about my children. Um, as a parent of a child with autism, I think, guess that makes it even harder. How can I do that? You know, at times it feels like our lives are being held together by nothing but duct tape and prayer. But still, you know, we have to try and get that balance. If we can't, then what hope is there for family and friends who aren't there every day? What hope is there for the church? The only way to really adapt is to know the needs of the people we're working with and have em- empathy for them. Lila mentioned Petey's unusual behaviours, the little detects and traits that he had that, that maybe concerned us. Um, there's one time where... It was after he'd lost, lost all the words. He was probably, probably about two, I'd say. And, you know, he, he struggled to communicate. He was frustrated a lot of the time. You know, it was hard to get him to maintain eye contact. Wouldn't give out hugs or kisses. And, you know, that, as a parent, is a, is a distressing time. But it was distressing for him as well. He, he started climbing up beside us on the sofa. Doesn't matter what you were doing. You'd be watching TV. You could be just sitting reading a book, and climb up beside you, just very gen- gently would come over and go tap you on the arm three times. It took us a little while to realise, but that was his way of saying that he loved us, that he was comfortable around us, that he was happy. And he kept doing that for, for months. It's almost, it's almost sad that he doesn't do it anymore. He couldn't express how he felt the same way that we can to one another, but he found his own way. He, he found his own language and his own method to communicate. He himself adapted and then in turn we adapted to him. In order to learn, we actually had to listen to him. Part of that being inclusive and knowing what to do is having a bit of knowledge. So what I hope to do really um, briefly is to kind of introduce autism to you. Um, So for many of you, um, the only exposure you might have to autism is when you come to church on, um, on a Sunday. Um, And that is a really good start and you actually are ahead of most people in that sense that you're aware and you've seen some traits of children with autism. Um, But being really honest, before we had Petey, we would have really struggled to make that connection to an autism parent because it's awkward and I think we would have verged on the side of just wanting to give them space. And that's the way a lot of us sort of um, feel when we, we look at special needs families. We think, let's give them a bit of space. Let's, you know, give them a bit of privacy. We don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, and that's our attitude. And if that's how you feel tonight, that is okay to say that because you may never have encountered a child or a person with autism in close quarters before. Um, but really, if we come back again to the Great Commission, we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to love all people. And um, that's going to include those families as well. Um, and then if we're being really expectant and we're saying that we are building the church and we are going into our community. So if we go into Rich Hill, the size of Rich Hill, there are many, many special needs families there. And if we're being expectant and build the kingdom, it's going to include some of them as well. It's, it's not just going to be people that look and act like us. So autism is a really complex thing, but in a nutshell, autism is a neurological disorder. OK, so it originates in the brain and 
The official term for autism is ASD, which stands for Autistic Spectrum Disorder. And that word spectrum is really important when you're trying to understand autism. Because if you think about it as a big range, okay, so you may have two people who have autism in the same building and they can have completely different symptoms. They could be at different ends of the spectrum. No two people with autism are the same and the symptoms don't manifest in the same way. So you probably have seen maybe a severely autistic child who maybe can't speak and has very um, awkward bodily movements. And you could have met another child with autism who is totally fits into the class with your child and you would never know they have it and you've many people in between and so when no two people are the same it sometimes can be hard to know what to expect there's no cure for ASD it's more common in boys than in girls but there's no medical explanation for why this is the case the way the people with autism are assessed is based on something called the triad of impairments and um, those three impairments are communication, social interaction and imagination. And so some of those are more severe than others. So some some people with autism can't they can't talk that they have a severe impairment of their communication, but they could act socially appropriate in, in social settings. Um, other people might might communicate very, very well, but they their imagination, that's where there is a challenge there. So maybe they, they are very literal. They don't understand sarcasm. If you say something, it's in the here and now, and they can't put context into that. And you can have a little bit of each, and it varies from person to person. One thing that is more common among uh, people with ASD is that they will have some level of sensory difficulty. And you've probably all heard that word, sensory. Um, really simply, what it means is it means that one of their senses, so for example, their hearing, it's normally more than one, but more than one or more of their senses is very hypersensitive or very hyposensitive. So, you know, you would maybe see some children with autism wear like earphones because they hear everything so much louder than we do. And that really bothers and distresses them. And parents have worked it out. So they wear headphones and they're out and about. And that's how they cope. Can be touch, can be sight, can be smell, can be all of them, which can be really difficult, especially for a child who's nonverbal. Could also be the other end, they could be really hyposensitive, they just want lots and lots of things, and they can almost appear impulsive, like they want and want and they grab, and they're very, um, we, what we would accuse as challenging behaviour, but they're just wanting some sensory feedback, they want to feel something tightly so they can actually feel it. And that's, that sensory difficulty is a more common um, difficulty with people with ASD. Um, so that's something to be aware of, um, even if we don't understand all the other bits. Um, So then that sensory difficulty can lead to frustration. So to a person who's already frustrated that people don't understand them and that they don't seem to fit in, those sensory difficulties lead to more frustration. And especially in children, that can then cause challenging behaviour, which causes parents to be frustrated, which means the parents maybe just don't know what to do and they do the wrong thing and then the child gets more frustrated and there's a big cycle there. Um, And that cycle of behaviour can be very difficult for parents and the child. So if you imagine yourself to be that parent or caregiver with that child who is really struggling and the parent really just can't put their finger on it, if you imagine how you would feel, what your emotions would be in that minute? I can tell you from experience, it's really lonely. It's a really lonely place. And like we've explained, we have the best support network. I don't know how we could improve on our support network. We are unusually blessed in that sense, but it is lonely. You can become very bitter. You can become angry. You can feel sad and weepy all at the same time. And the world really does seek to just ignore you because if the world can't fix you or cure you or make you like them, you really are boxed off. And that is the world's reaction. And so when you think about it, it's really little wonder that these parents and families don't push themselves into new social situations. How hard would it be just to walk to church and bring your family with special needs when the world really just ignores you and you're living this life with all this emotion and Um, real hurt you can understand why we don't have more special needs families in the bigger church today and so that's why we really feel our burden is that we have to be better than that the world's standard is to ignore it's to say we can't fix you cure you you don't fit in we're going to box you you're over here we have pity and sympathy but you are over there and that is what special needs families are used to day in and day out in every sense in medical terms in education terms sadly in a lot of churches as well what our suggestion is that we have to be up here we have to raise that standard and you have to do it on purpose 
And it doesn't mean getting fancy facilities. It doesn't mean spending thousands of pounds in sensory rooms. It doesn't mean having a full staff who are really well-trained. All those things are great. And if the Lord blesses us with that, that's great. But it starts in your heart and it really comes out your face. It's not even your words that you say. And we are going to get into a bit of practicality a bit later on. But what I want you to really do is to put yourself in that mindset and just think, well, how can I as a person in my life and especially in my church family raise that standard? We have to be... But you have to really aim for it. So Andrew's going to talk to us a little bit more now about um, disability in the Bible and what we can learn from it. Could you just say what's in your heart comes out your face? Yep. I like that. I haven't heard that. Um, I understand. I understand. This is the interactive bit. Everyone's been sitting down too long, listening to me rambling, listening to Lila saying smart things. Um, I want to get a bit of bit of back and forth going. So... Disability in the Bible. This is, this is like a pop quiz. Um, it's like youth fellowship on a Friday night. Um, I want people raising hands, and I would like you to name examples of disability or illness in the Bible. Uh, and because nobody's actually going to put their hand up, I'm going to put a minute before it stops getting awkward. Oh, David, go ahead, David. Give us more details. Okay. Just shout out then. Just blind, blind man. Leprosy. Oh yes, lame man by the pool at Bethesda. Woman with the issue. Woman with the issue of blood. Anything else? Paul. That was my point. I was about to make. No one was meant to get that. Oh dear. Right. Paul's just ruined it all. Um, yes. Yes. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> You see, okay, right, well, whenever we think about disability in the Bible, we do get all the same common answers except for what Paul said. Nobody ever thinks of that. That was going to be my excellent mind-blowing point. Um, there, are lots of, there are other examples of disability in the Bible that maybe aren't as obvious. They aren't those physical ailments that, that we're common with. Um, and there's a lot of disability mentioned in the New Testament. There's a lot of people there that are healed by Jesus. Um, they're not just healed, they're, they're, they're saved by him as well. Um, but there's just a lot of mention of, of illness and disability. Uh, and and, and back, in, back in the Old Testament days, back even in the New Testament days, it wasn't just something that was maybe wrong with you physically or mentally that, that meant that you, were, that you were disabled. Even just being being poor meant that you were a outcast from society. You were disabled in the fact that you couldn't partake with everyone else. The, the things that you worked in meant that you couldn't join in. You know, we're all familiar with the story of the prodigal son uh, who goes out to the, you know, he wastes all of his inheritance and he ends up living with and working with the pigs, which to the Jews would have been an abomination. You know, he, by all rights, should have been shunned by their society. He, he, he was doing something that meant that he could no longer fit in with everyone else. There, there are a whole range of, of disabilities, disorders, learning difficulties um, that children and adults alike can suffer from that aren't immediately visible, that aren't noticeable at first glance or when you just bump into somebody in the shops and there's a child on the floor having a tantrum, you, 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 just, you don't know what's going on there. You know, aside from autism, you have ADHD, dyslexia, you've got depression, anxiety, and other things. People might judge a child uh, as being normal or not normal um, based on some very you know, quick glances and, and behaviours. Adults might ignore a person because they're feeling a bit awkward themselves and don't really know what to do, but you know, children might resort to bullying or name-calling. For people in that situation and for parents, it can become a huge challenge just to leave the house. I mean, sometimes it's a huge challenge just to leave the house and go and do something new anyway. But with that added pressure, it just makes it really, really difficult. Like I said, the church needs to raise the bar. Well, a few years ago, I honestly used to dread going to church. And I would think up every excuse it was, it was like, do you remember back in school, like, you, this probably didn't happen to you, 
Um, but there are some of us, I know it happened to Johnny, where you're in, you don't want to go to school that day, and you know, there's a, maybe a little headache in there, but you know, maybe a glass of water and some fresh air will fix it. But oh, I'm dying, I'm dying, I can't go today. Anyone, can anyone relate to that? <laughs> I feel like Neil's nodding there too. Um, is, that, is that just church sometimes, Neil? <laughs> when he was a pastor? Yeah. <laughs> so, there was nothing motivating me to go beyond just the obligation of it, and, and even that wasn't enough. I know all, you know, I know I should be at church, I know I should be setting a good example to my family, but when it becomes such a challenge just to go and not be judged, it's really, really difficult. I mean, even a trip to Tesco became like a day out. You know, that was somewhere we went to and we were familiar with and we knew how long it took to get there and we knew where everything was and you could go and, you know, and the kids could come with you and there was air conditioning if it was a day like this. You know, so like that was like a trip to, to Coleraine sometimes, just, just going to Tesco or going to Starbucks and back because you were living your life caring for someone with additional needs. You were drained, like I mentioned before, sleep deprived. And I'm going to keep mentioning that because... I'm really glad now that it's so much better and we are getting sleep, but it was really rough for a couple of years there where, I don't know, it was maybe three years where it was like having a newborn. And you maybe get three or four nights in a row all of a sudden where, where Peter would sleep from seven o'clock through to seven o'clock. And you think, praise the Lord, this is great. And then you realise he's lulled you into a false sense of security because the fourth night he's up at one o'clock and three o'clock and then five o'clock that's him up for the day. And then I maybe have to go out to work at seven. And Lila has to get the kids out to school. And then you repeat that again. So by the time Sunday came and you're trying to rest and you're thinking, guys, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go out. I don't want to have to face this challenge, this level of discomfort. It's, it's, it's no wonder that, like Lila said, there's not that many families with special needs in the church. In fact, if you think about it, there's not an awful lot of families with special needs out and about in general. In, in, in lots of the social settings and places we go to, you know, whether that's a cinema or a restaurant, because those can be challenging. And that's why you know, a lot of shopping centres and, and places are running, for example, autism-friendly screenings in the cinema or autism-friendly shopping days, because they realise that you know, there are things that they can do to make it more comfortable for people. So, like Paul wisely mentioned, there was a man in the Bible who had uh, a disability of sorts, and it was pretty hidden. Um, God wanted him to carry out a very important task, and you know, he to the outside world, he he appeared you know well educated. He he was rugged, you know, working in the mountains. He probably had a really epic beard, and he he didn't have a statement of special educational needs. But when God gave him this challenge to, to go and, and free his people, Moses just couldn't do it. Moses was, was terrified. Do you want to hit the button? Oh, you got it? Good. So Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, eloquent, nor am I, apparently, um, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And lots of people kind of criticize Moses about this, and they say, oh, this is Moses just being a bit of a wimp. He, he didn't want to do it. He was trying to get himself out of it. But, you know, perhaps this really was a genuine anxiety that Moses suffered from. He couldn't do it. So, I mean, it's a pretty big task to say, I want you to go back to Egypt to, to the Pharaoh, who you know, basically everyone in the land worships as a god, and where you're wanted for murder. And I want you to tell him to let go, of, let go of all the slaves, the ones that are doing all the work for you, so that they can go off into the desert to worship their God. Even if Moses didn't have an issue. I mean, I couldn't do that. I don't know if any of you, are, are anyone here ready to go and you know, take on the queen? Maybe a few people. I don't know where the crowd's from tonight. Um, so God, God says, you shall speak to him. This is Aaron, his brother. And put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth, and with his mouth, and we'll teach you both what to do. So God, instead of rebuking Moses, instead of miraculously healing Moses' nerves, he, he assists him. 
he sends his brother with him and he says he's, he's going to help both of them. You notice it's, he's not just helping Moses, he's helping Aaron as well. He's helping the helper so that together they're able to fulfill the mission that God set for them. Throughout history, there, there's, there's been this pattern where, where people who may have a, some sort of neurological or, or developmental disability are seen as being a bit unsafe to be around. You know, they, you know, they're criminals, you know, people kind of turn their nose up. and you know, Lots of old movies and old books and things are kind of full of that sort of idea. But it's not even old stuff. You know, if, if I was to suggest that all Mexicans are murderers and rapists... Um, some of you have maybe heard people saying that in the last year. We know that that's not true. Um, but it's very easy for that sort of negative attitude, that sort of bigotry to spread and become popular opinion. In the Bible, we see lots of examples of, of, um, of how society's outcasts were treated. Jewish customs meant that uh, they took the law that, incidentally, Moses wrote, a lot of inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, they, took, they took that law and they kind of turned the legalism up to 11. People, people often wonder what Jesus looked like. Uh, I imagine most of the time it was like this. Um, because in the New Testament, he spends an awful lot of his ministry trying to course correct the Jewish people, trying to point out that they've gotten their customs backwards, that they've forgotten about love and empathy for their neighbor. <coughs> There's a really interesting example of, of bigotry in the Bible that you could almost overlook. And it's actually in the book of Job. Job himself, who at the time, maybe about chapter 30-ish, is destitute, he's penniless, he's sick, he's alone. He has some of the worst friends in history. And he's sitting there kind of contemplating his lot and, and moaning about things. Um, and, and so this is in chapter chapter uh, chapter 30. Yep. Um, now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. I mean, this, is, this is ESV. It's even worse than the King James. Job is really rough on people. What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? A senseless and nameless brood. They have been whipped out of the land, and now I became their song. I am a byword to them. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. Job is described in, in the book of Job as being a blameless and upright man. He fears God and turns away from evil. But whenever people are, are, are criticizing him, whenever the, the, the outcasts of society are, are laughing at him, he gets, he gets outraged. He, he still, in his, in his suffering, has a level of, of bigotry, which is probably based on society, for those people, for the people who, who are um, people who are outcast, people who are too weak to work, it talks about how the strength of their hands are gone. Um, this same Job, who's complaining in chapter thirty and chapter nine, is talking about all the good work he did. He talks about how he put on righteousness and it clothed him. Justice was like a robe and a turban. He was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. He was a father to the needy. He searched out the cause of him whom I, whom I did not know. So Job here sounds like, like a, a great guy. He sounds like he's doing a great job. And he's thinking to himself, I've done all this good. Why am I in this state? Why am I suffering? Why can I not get a night's sleep? We've been there. We've definitely been there. How can a man as good as Job, a man that God says is blameless, have such an attitude of elitism to people, even when he's done such good work? Job compares the people to criminals, which means they probably weren't actually criminals. He describes them as men whose vigor is gone. They're unable to work with their hands. In a society like that, that meant that they probably didn't have a job. They probably didn't have a home. They were living outside of the city. Just because they were excluded, that meant they became lower in society than Job. And Job did help people. He did care for people. He was very wealthy, and, and perhaps he threw money at the problem. But it doesn't mean that that his attitude towards them was, was always correct. God didn't... Job wasn't in that situation because he had a bad attitude towards people in society. That just happened. And by the end of, of the book, while God's been talking to him, Job has realised that his attitude, his attitude in his suffering, his attitude of other people maybe wasn't correct. 
starting at chapter 38, God begins to work on him. And he, he doesn't just try to lift up Job's spirits, but he tries to set his heart right, tries to set his mind right. By the end of the book, we know Job's family and his livelihood and everything have been restored and, and it's all good again. But there's no mention there that Job was ever healed. And there's some scholars think that actually Job was never healed. Um, because by the end of the book, that was no longer important. That wasn't the point of his suffering. Job's situation and his time with God were about teaching him, him empathy, teaching him a level of understanding where his ability no longer mattered. So by the end of the book, Job's not complaining about the situation he's in. But what he does say in, in chapter uh, 42 is about how he's, his understanding of God has changed through this experience. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So his relationship with God changed from just hearing to now seeing. He learns really what it's like to have a heart like God for other people. At some point in our lives, we're probably all going to suffer some sort of, of, of illness or disability. For some, it might be temporary. For others, it might be a lifelong condition. For some, it might be something simple that's treatable nowadays, like, like needing glasses, and there's a good few people wearing glasses here. Um, it could be something like the need of a hearing aid or an artificial hip. There's some people who may even be healed miraculously. But ultimately, for most of us, we're going to have to wait until, until that glorious day where we're all healed, where we're all transformed. But until that day... What can the church do? Do we follow the model of the world where we, we look to prevent and to treat and to cure? Or do we think, is there something else we can do as well? And I think what we learn from, from Job especially um, is it's important to, to hear and to see what's going on. Do not just think, but to feel for people. And whether someone has a disability or not, we really shouldn't be putting up barriers that that stop us being able to reach them, whatever those barriers might be. It really comes down to just not getting in the way of the gospel. I know I've kind of went very broad and I haven't just talked about autism and I've talked, you know, talked about other things. Um, Lila's going to talk a little bit about more what the church can do practically um, and then I'm going to finish things after that. The rubber has to meet the road at some point and all of this stuff is really good to dwell on. It's really good to look at disability in the Bible. It's really good to have that theological base for what we're doing in every ministry. But at some point we'll have to be able to live it out. And for a lot of people you might be afraid of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. You might have the love in your heart but you don't know where, what else to do with that. And we, there's so much that we could talk about in terms of individual ministries, like the media ministry or the children's ministry. And there are really specific things that we can do to support individuals with autism and special needs families. But tonight we thought we'll go um, for a general approach of general things that you can do and something you can take away tonight to give you a bit more confidence. Now, some of these things lots of you already do and we know because we are on the receiving end of them. So if you think, well, I already do that, I want to really encourage you, but say, well, let's raise the bar, let's do more, let's be really purposeful and I really want to confirm to you, you're on the right path. Um, so first thing that you need to be on the foundation is that you need to take away that fear of the unknown. For a lot of you, if someone come in to church and you were the first person they spoke to and they said, oh, my child has ADHD, can he go to Sunday school? You probably would panic a little bit and think, what is that? And that fear, that's the first barrier. We'll have to take that away. That fear of the unknown isn't a godly fear. It's not something that's going to help the situation. What we would suggest is if you're presented with something that you don't know enough about, you don't understand, is to be curious about it and to acknowledge it. So um, special needs families, as I've already explained, they're generally ignored. If people don't know what it is, they back off. We have to be different. So the first thing to do is acknowledge, even just say, okay, put a positive or whatever that is so if you are on the welcome team that week and you might think this is all oh, typical it's me that's on this week and someone comes in and you say oh we have you know great children's ministry um and they say oh my child has asperger's and again you might think what is that um it's in that same bracket with autism and adhd um don't shy away from it the worst thing you can do is go hmm Okay, and then you might look and you want someone and you think, I wish someone else was here. Don't do that. Say, okay. Explain the facilities we have and go alongside them. Say, would you like to see? Or and take the 
Choose your language carefully. Don't put it in terms of can your child do it or can't they do it? Would they like to? Would they like to be part of the children's ministry today? Would they like to come to the creche? Not can they or will they be able to? Because that's the language that the world treats these people with and we want to change that. We have to put the positive. There's always a positive and we can always find it. That ignorance is then, if you take that away, everything else will be easier because that fear is what leads to the ignorance. And that's what leads to special needs families being isolated and ultimately not reached with the gospel at all. So um, the next point then is if you get over that fear and you, you acknowledge it, is to ask the right questions. So it's okay to not know what it is. Before we had PD, we wouldn't have known anything about autism. There are many different conditions now we still don't know anything about, and that's okay. Ask the right questions when you meet someone, so in your general lives and in the church context. When you ask a parent about their child's diagnosis or about their illness, you give them a power that I can't describe in words. Because we are used to people assuming things and making a prejudgment and thinking, oh, I know that because I know there's a wee boy I met once before with that and already they're just not listening, their ears are closed. Whereas if you ask, that, that empowerment that you're giving that parent the control to, to really control the narrative around their child, to set the tone, to say this is what he can do, this is what he enjoys, this is what he'll struggle with. That is, the, that is so empowering and to me... That's the start of the gospel being shared. And it, you do it, first of all, with your face. Because if your face says, oh no, I am panicking, you're, they're gone. They're gone. Whereas if you acknowledge and ask the right question and ask, what does that mean? Or how does that affect him? Or is there anything specific we can get out for you? That means the world to that parent. And it's really difficult if you've never been in that position. But take our word for it. That means a lot. And lots of you are so good at doing that. You do that by you know, offering us help by, you know, saying do you need a seat brought over? That's a really practical thing to do and we're having a hard day with Katie. Or, you know, saying do you want me to get something for you? Or would you like to go outside? Or things like that that are practical and are absolutely nothing to do with the Bible or the gospel or Christ. That's the start of it. Um, and that's all going to come out your mouth and it's going to come out your face as I said. <laughs> Helpful questions. Okay, so if you do get into a conversation in your life or in church and that connection is made... Things like, um, how long has he had a diagnosis? Because you're not shying away from it, you're not ignoring it, you're affirming it and you want to know. And it's showing an interest. Um, Does it affect his sleep? I can say with almost 99% certainty, all special needs parents are sleep deprived. And if you've ever had children, you know what it's like to have a newborn. Try having that for your whole life. And sometimes, like we are fortunate medication works for us right now. For a long time, we didn't have that. It is tough. Sleep deprivation is, I think, one of the worst forms of torture. And for parents, you can almost assume that they're struggling that way. So that's something to show you have a bit of insight and you're asking genuinely in concern. What sorts of things does he struggle with? This is really important if you are involved in a ministry with a child and they could potentially be coming into your care because you want to know what um, what he struggles with and what his triggers are. Okay. Um, recently, Andrew left PD in a crash in another church and it was the first time he was there and I thought this was madness and panicked and Andrew went and done it anyway um, and he said that he was worried but he said like the first thing when he went in and he, Andrew said he has autism they said okay well what does he like to do or what are his triggers and at that point Andrew was like oh, they get it they get it they don't know him they don't know me but yes that's the right that's the right question and that can be all that can make all the difference to that family do you have support from the health trust or charities what sorts of activities does he enjoy? So again, you're not saying, what can he do? Or can he do this? You're saying, what does he enjoy? Would he enjoy doing this? Um, is there anything we can do to help your family? And this is in the church, and this is in your lives. Um, very often, you maybe have seen a meltdown of a child that you maybe suspect there's a special need, and they're in a public place, and the amount of times you're ignored, and people think they're doing the right thing by taking a wide berth and you know walking into each other to give you this space in a supermarket it's not okay that's it's the worst that ignorance is worse and most of the time there's not a thing you can do so if you say can I jump to help you they will say no but you ask in that 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 is the gospel in a in a nutshell that that extension and that will mean the world to those people um, no two families are the same um, with special needs okay and even if they share a diagnosis as I've explained um, they can be very different 
um, always assume that you know nothing. Okay, so even next Sunday, if someone came in and said, "Oh, my four-year-old son has autism and he's partially verbal," it's so easy to go, "Oh, that's like Petey. I don't know what to do." You don't, because he could be completely different. And even if I was the person on the crash that week, I would still have to go back to say, "Is there anything he struggles with? What does he enjoy?" Um, are there any triggers we need to be aware of? I would have to ask that too, even though I know a lot about four-year-old boys with autism. So always go back to assuming that you don't know anything and don't compare to anyone else you know with ASD. Um, understand the mindset of the caregiver. Okay, so I've explained this a bit about those emotions, but you need to understand that a special needs family lives in battle. Okay, and it's, it is really fair to say they all do. None of them have things given to them in the way they should, they're not provided for in the way they should, the way they should by the government or by churches or by the health service. If they're not in a medical battle, they're in a battle about education. So at the minute, our battle is an educational one. For a while, it was medical. Now it's educational. Some people have battles within their own families who don't support them. We are not the standard to compare here. Some people really struggle to get family members to acknowledge their child has a diagnosis. All too often, they hear a grow out of it just needs a good smack okay some people need a good smack okay um you know a lot of parents they know that's not true it's not discipline problem okay and it's not to excuse bad behavior in any way but what we're saying is that is not the case in Petey's case he has a bit of a chromosome missing that we know from genetics and that causes his autism no amount of discipline or ignorance or anything is going to make that come back that's the way he is that's his genetic makeup and we accept that but a lot of families are in battle with their own parents or their own siblings to try and get them to understand this is his illness this isn't something we can change so if you understand that mindset we have to make sure we are not the place of the battle okay and the only battle we should have is a spiritual one to keep the devil out of our efforts that's the only battle those parents should see within the church So when they come in, they don't have to explain themselves. They don't have to have fear that someone is judging them because from your face, you're going to smile at them. You won't know what you're doing. You won't know what to say. But that in itself is is really helping them to to feel acknowledged, like they get it. Um, And asking them open questions. If you're going to ask questions, ask open ones that they can... Because believe me, especially as parents, you ask them a question about their child, there's lots to say. You don't have to prompt too much. People love talking about their children. So if you ask one good open question, they'll probably give you all the information you need. And all you need to do is smile, acknowledge. Thank you for sharing. I'm really glad you came today. We're really encouraged to see you. Thank you for coming. That Those really simple things that won't come out of your mouth because you're panicking over saying the wrong thing, they're just as relevant. Never pity, okay? So none of you do this. The people that I know in the room, they don't do this. But um, pity and sympathy are just so, so unhelpful. And in many cases, they're offensive. Because one of the worst things that a special needs parent can hear is something like, I don't know how you do it. That must be so hard. Or one I had when Petey was very young was, our hearts go out to you. And that was from good Christian people. And it was meant in love. It wasn't meant in a, you know, in a critical way. Their hearts did go out to me. But I thought, why? I have such a blessing here. I have, you know, you're thinking of this as like a terminal burden like a drain and I'm thinking I'm actually out here I'm having quite a good day yes my child had a meltdown in front of you all but that was actually a good day for him and your hearts go out to me so you were you were discussing that you were pitying me you're not seeing how amazing he is you know that is not helpful and in the church we just we have to do away with that pity and sympathy are appropriate in certain circumstances in death or in a terminal illness or sometimes when somebody really needs it and they need that sympathy but not in the case of special needs diagnosis and what they need is um, really encouraging words so saying things like we're glad you came your child is a blessing you know see the positive even if he is having a bad day you know He smiled at me really nicely this morning or, you know, he gave me a hug or he gave me a high five or, you know, we're really glad you came out. You can always find something um, and doing that really shows you're not pitying them, you're acknowledging them and you're giving them a wee bit of encouragement. And there's not much to that. You don't need a qualification to be able to do that. So then if you're going to stare, do it with a smile. It's really, you, lots of you are so, so good at this. Um, but if you do it, I just want to encourage you, do it, do it more, do it more on purpose. Um, when children with autism, 
um, or similar uh, disabilities or disorders, when they do become frustrated, they do make a scene. And you've, many of you have seen PD when he's had a really frustrating day and we can't, normally we can kind of guess what it is, sometimes we can't, and he can be down at the back of the church and screaming and kicking, and he's so big now, he's hard to restrain, and, you know, it causes a scene. We're not, we're not embarrassed by that, that's just life. And he does this in all public places that you can think of. But the problem is, when you hear a noise, you do turn around and you stare. And that's okay. I do it as well. I, if I hear a noise, you do look. If a baby cries, you do turn around and see which baby it is. It's just a natural thing. And I'm not saying don't do that. Because if we don't stare, we're ignoring them. Which adds to that ignorance, which adds to the problem. So if you're going to look, do it and affirm them. Smile at the person. The parent might be there just waiting for this tantrum to ride out until the child comes down. Smile at them or nod in a bit of moral support. If it's appropriate to go over and say, can I do the help? You won't be able to, there's nothing you can do, but just that offer um, is more than enough. And yeah, I think there's not too much more I can say with that because you are also good at doing it. But um, yeah, acknowledging and smiling is really, really important. Moving on then, we are almost finished. Don't use inappropriate Bible verses. So um, (laughs) Andrew said, don't be blunt. This is what he told me before I started. So there's lots of verses in the Bible and you don't need to choose a safe one if you're going to quote it to someone. So if you're saying, especially as family who's going through a really hard time and maybe they're going through, their child is just maybe being aggressive or they're in battle over a, a, you know, a medical test or they're struggling financially and that happens so often with special needs families. Don't sort of go in and say, do you know, it'll be all right, Romans 8, 28, all things work together. That is so inappropriate. And it's not that I don't believe that. I do. I believe every verse of scripture. But that's not appropriate. To that parent at that moment who's so lonely and feels like nobody actually gets it and nobody can help and fix anything, someone to say, oh, it'll all be for good. It's all for the good of the kingdom. That's not helpful. So choose a safe, encouraging verse if the Lord leads you in that way. But just be so careful with what you say because you can't hurt more than, more than help. Lastly then, just be open with your own children and grandchildren about disability and difference. Um, It would really shock you that your children and grandchildren probably know more about these sorts of things than you do. Um, It's so normal in classrooms now for children in mainstream schools to have um, diagnoses of autism or dyslexia or ADHD. And they come out with it and it's so normal. But previously in the past, there's been a bit of shame and almost maybe an older generation might say, um, you don't talk about that, that's none of your business. You, you don't say anything about that, there's something wrong with him, you're not allowed to say anything. You know, it's very much, it's none of your business privacy. That's not helpful. So being really open and if some, you know, if your child says, well, why was Petey making all that noise at the back of the church today? It's okay to say, because he's autism and he just doesn't know how to tell us things sometimes and that's what happens. That's okay. That's what we do with our children. We are very open and honest with them. And I think if we do that in a church in one generation that's growing up, We've almost taken away that prejudice. We've raised a generation where it's just totally normal for people to come in and act really peculiar because they have a diagnosis of something and our kids say, well, that's just that. That's that's normal. We don't need to make any big scene about it. That's it. Um, and I think that's really a way we can kind of think forward. That's something we can do um, for the future and for the benefit of the church. Um, so really, and all those, they're very general. As I say, if you have more specific ministries in mind, there's always more that we can do. Um, but what I would say to you is, in general, if you have a family of special needs come into our church, come into your life, come into um, your coffee shop, into your charity shop, into whatever area that you're in, um, all that family needs is to be acknowledged, to be accepted, to be offered assistance, and then sometimes we can make adaptions for them. They need you to come alongside them. They don't need you to come in and make a fuss and be, make a whole thing about it, and they definitely don't want it ignored. The Bible says in Romans 12, 15, that we should rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And I would suggest that with a special needs family, you do that alongside them. And you can sense the tone. You know, if they're having a hard week, don't be getting like Romans 8, 28, making a fuss and getting 10 people to pray around them. It can be subtle and it can be a simple offer of something practical or a hug. And if they're having a good week and, you know, they are rejoicing, rejoice with them. But it's that idea of coming alongside with your body, with your face, with your actions, with the practical words you say, if you get past all that, that's the gospel already. And then if they're in the church, then they're going to be exposed to gospel preaching, which is ultimately what we want, because we're not here just to create a safe place. We're here to fulfill the Great Commission. And that's what all this is about.
Andrew's going to finish us off now. Thank you so much. I was joking with Neil earlier that this was going to be a long one tonight, and but really I thought once we get going, well, it'll be fine. But I realise what time it is, so I'm going to skip a whole bunch of stuff. I had a really really good joke about GDPR, but um, we'll we'll go past that. Um, uh, and skip ahead to oh yes okay so um, <laughs> if you think about um, disabilities in the wider world um, businesses have a whole bunch of obligations that they have to meet uh, some of you even maybe in, in like recent home builds or extensions you've had to ensure that door handles are at the right height and light switches are the right height should people with wheelchairs um, be coming along or if you should need that in the future you, you find like most new builds will have a certain width of door um, these are accessibility ad- adaptations that are being made in the real world and you know it, it's, it's safe to say should the church follow suit should the church be doing the same sort of thing um, you know, some, some churches do in fact some churches already operate like a business you know, some churches are massive conglomerates with, with a staff of a few hundred and, and, you know, two dozen ministries. They have a huge budget and they can actively pursue accessibility compliance. But then what really sets them apart from other companies that do the same? What sets them apart from Coca-Cola or, or Apple, who are seen to have good track records in accessibility? One of the things that I've came to realise, especially over the last few years, has been has been the importance of, of empathy in the church. And I've talked about that a bit this evening. Having a, a Christ-like heart means that the church actually has an advantage over the world. It's not just doing something out of obligation or compliance. It's doing something out of love. It doesn't mean the church shouldn't run like a business, but it doesn't mean that it should either. The church doesn't need to be aware of every new piece of legislation that comes out, but it should want to assist people. When it comes to disability, or when it comes to adapting to disabilities, it can cost a lot of money for businesses to to meet every new regulation. And to be honest, I don't even know where where church organisations fall in, in complying with a lot of a lot of legislation. But that's not something that that I personally need. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't care about it. We uh, in our household weren't prepared for a child with special needs to come along. But we had to adapt quickly, and we still are. We're still we're learning on our feet. Um, we have to learn not to be disappointed when things don't go to plan. We uh, have to learn from others. Um, and sometimes, like I said earlier, it's Petey himself that teaches us things that we didn't know. Back at Christmas, it was almost a miracle that, in fact, it probably was a miracle that at his nursery school integrity play, he sat at the stage of the front at Eden Dairy Nursery School with about 200 adults and all of the nursery school children and he sat there for 45 minutes plus 15 minutes of the, pr- the primary school principal waffling on at the end I didn't get up I didn't run laps around and he took part in every song and he knew the actions and, and we, were, we were amazed I was, I was in tears there with, with joy because he was doing something that that I didn't think he could do. I had set my expectations so low that he surprised me that day. (sighs) Businesses have regulations and obligations. Families like us, we have needs. And what is the church if it's not a family? We weren't prepared. And it's okay that the church might not be either. you know, some people might say, if, if we don't have congregants in wheelchairs, we don't need to put an ugly wheelchair around by the front. Maybe nobody in your church suffers from epilepsy, so it's okay to, to have strobe lights going during worship. That, that, that's okay. And maybe it is. Maybe it is for a time. The important thing is to be sensitive, to be, to be aware that others do have different needs, and it's not just them making a fuss or trying to be different. We may need to make adaptations and thinking that we don't need to do something because there's nobody like that here, it could just be as simple as they're not here because they've went somewhere else or they haven't went anywhere at all. The church needs to reveal the Father's heart to the community. So it's okay for us not to be prepared as long as we act in love in everything that we do. We've talked about how difficult it is for us and other families in our situation to do something new, to go somewhere new. Even, you know, to 
go on holiday for an extended period of time is, is a challenge. You know, almost a year ago we came here to a church service backed up by nothing but prayer and Google, and we were welcomed and loved immediately. And I, I say, and I say, Google, you know, kind of half joking, but it's true. You know, we we did have prayer, we did have faith, we wanted to to try something different. But we weren't just going to just go out anywhere. I mean, like even if we're going to a new shop, we kind of we we like to have a, a look around first. Maybe one of us will go without the kids or go to a new play place. We'll we'll go with the girls first and see what it's like. See if it's going to be a safe or an appropriate environment for Peter to go to. So when we were coming here, we looked at the website. We looked at what facilities it had, and and. You know, we did have a short list of churches, and, and there were churches that didn't make that list because they didn't have a website. And I could talk for another hour about the need and the relevance of a church website, but I'll not do that tonight. You can bring me back, Neil. <laughs> we, we didn't come and judge the church because they didn't meet every single one of PD's needs. We didn't think, oh, if only the ministry would do this or if only somebody said that because the second we arrived people people cared for us we didn't make it into the second church on the list you were still here 10 or 11 months later even in the face of david mcbride's hugs (laughs) i'm still here and that's what happens when you feel accepted and loved like i think lila stole my line earlier and she said what What's the Great Commission that I love? Or maybe I stole my own line and said it earlier. I don't know. Um, but if we do something like businesses out of obligation and we don't have love, then what, what good is in it? The church itself is stronger when it's a family, it, when it acts like a family. And like a family, the church might not always be perfect. It might not always agree with itself. But as a family, we can together adapt to the changing needs. We can... We can adapt with love, and, and that way we can bring the kingdom to really to everyone around us. Amen.